right, I'd like to welcome everyone to our program, Managing the Side Effects of Cancer Treatment, brought to you by the Libraries Just for the Health of It Health Literacy Program to improve community health through better health literacy. I'm very honored to have tonight's presenter, Dr. Robert P. Fine. He's a board-certified medical oncologist and hematologist with Astera Cancer Care here in East Brunswick. Just a little bit about Dr. Fine and his background. He completed his residency in internal medicine at New York University Bellevue Medical Center in New York. He has been honored by uh, Jersey Choice Top Doctor and New Jersey Monthly Top Doctor. Uh, Dr. Fine is also a member of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. He completed a medical, fellow, medical fellowship in, in medical oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And he is the chief of medical, um, medical oncology hematology at St. Peter's University Hospital. So we are very honored to have Dr. Fine. Um, just a, one quick housekeeping thing. Please feel free to enter any questions into the chat box as we go along through the program. And Amelia will um, address all of the, the uh, chat messages at the end of the program. She will read the question and then Dr. Fine will answer them. Okay, so without further ado, uh, enjoy the program and here's Dr. Fine. Okay, thank you for that introduction. I appreciate it. Um, so I'm sure many of you know who I am, as you can tell from the introduction. Um, I've been here a long time. Actually, I've been in practice here now about 38, 39 years. Um, and I'm very pleased to give this lecture tonight. Um, so I think we can actually go to the, um, go to the videotape, as they would say in sports, but we can go to the, um, PowerPoint presentation now. Okay, thank you. So what I'm going to speak about tonight is basically the side effects of common cancer treatments. And the most common treatment that we give patients that have cancer is chemotherapy. But I'm also going to speak about hormonal therapy, immunotherapy, and a few other newer therapies towards the end. Um, well, there's my picture. Okay, uh, next slide. Is that how, I do, do I do the slides or do you do the slides? Okay. Um, I am doing so, the slides, but okay. if you, yeah, just so let me I'll, know when to go, sorry. Yeah, I'll just say next slide and then you go ahead. So um, okay. I'm gonna speak about chemotherapy first and just wanna give a little bit background of chemotherapy. Um, chemotherapy for cancer was first started to be used by physicians on patients probably in the 1940s or 1950s. Um, and the first drugs that were used were really drugs that were used for childhood leukemia and lymphoma. And the first chemotherapy drug that was actually given to patients was nitrogen mustard. And as many of you know, nitrogen mustard, mustard is a poison it's a nerve gas, well not nerve gas, but it's a gas that was used during World War I, um, both by the Germans and by the, um, the, the Allies. And it was a, a gas that was given, uh, used in battle that caused terrible burning of the eyes and it actually destroyed patients' lungs. But it was found that many patients, that many people that were soldiers that were exposed to mustard gas developed low blood counts and their bone marrows um, stopped functioning. 
And years later, doctors realized that that mustard gas was something that could be used to treat cancers. And the reason it could be used to treat cancers is that cancer cells grow in general much more rapidly than normal cells do. So one way we could treat cancer is by giving medication that would take advantage of cancer's rapid growth. And we could give medicines that would kill cells that are rapidly growing. And the earliest chemotherapy drug was nitrogen mustard. And it worked specifically because it killed cells that were growing more rapidly than other cells. So in front of you now, there's a list of common chemotherapy drugs or types of drugs or classes of drugs. And chemotherapy drugs are not monolithic. There's many different drugs and types of drugs that we use. The first class of drugs is called alkylating drugs. And these are drugs such as nitrogen mustard, which I just discussed, a drug called nitrosureas, a drug called oxaloplatin, and these are drugs that damage the DNA to prevent the cells from reproducing or growing. So if you can stop a cancer cell from reproducing, hopefully you can kill the cancer. The next type of drug that we use is anti-metabolites. And these are common drugs such as capsidabine, which is an oral drug called Zolota, um, cytarabine, Arise, which is commonly used in leukemia, a fludarabine, which is used for lymphomas, gemcitabine, hydroxyurea, methotrexate. These are all very common drugs. And these drugs work by interfering with the way that cells divide by interfering with both RNA and DNA. The next class of drugs we used are anthracyclines. And this is a very common drug, probably the most common chemotherapy drug in the past. And that was adriamycin, which is also called doxorubicin or donorubicin. And these are drugs that affect DNA replication. There's a drug called mitoxantrone and drugs called topoisomerase inhibitors and mitotic inhibitors. And these are drugs that interfere with the way the cells divide with mitosis. And lastly, we use corticosteroids, which are steroids, which also are a common chemotherapy drug that we use for many different types of cancer. All of these drugs work differently. They all kill cancer cells in a different way, and they all have different side effects. Some overlap, but some are particularly different. So when we're talking about side effects of chemotherapy, it really depends on what type of drug we're using. So next slide, please. So at the top, because chemotherapy drugs can't distinguish between rapidly grown cells and normal cells, um, and cancer cells, that's where some of the side effects come in. So if we're giving a drug that kills rapidly growing cells, well, cells in the body that are normal cells are also rapidly growing, such as the bone marrow, or such as the hair follicle, or such as the linings of the, the mouth and the GI tract. So many times when we give chemotherapy, we get anemia, and we get anemia because chemotherapy is affecting the cells that are growing rapidly in the bone marrow. Um, we can also see diarrhea because the chemotherapy cells can preferentially kill the cells in the GI tract. Again, it can't differentiate those cells from cancer cells. Get hair loss because the hair follicle grows rapidly and hair grows more rapidly than typical cells do, such as the skin. Um, you get an infection because the white cells can go low, which are in the bone marrow, and again, being affected 
preferentially by chemotherapy, get infertility because the, the um, eggs can, not the eggs, because the eggs are really all made when, before you're born, but the ovary and the, um, the um, testicle, the sperm cells grow more rapidly. Sores in the mouth, nausea and vomiting and urinary incontinence are other side effects that we can see commonly from chemotherapy because the cells grow more rapidly and are affected by chemotherapy. Other side effects that we can see from chemotherapy are constipation, which could be for many reasons, which I'll get to in a little while. We can see fatigue, both because of direct effects of chemotherapy on the bone marrow, causing people to be anemic, but it can also just affect you in general, give constitutional effects, making you tired. People can get fluid retention. They can have problems with memory or thinking. That's seen frequently in chemotherapy. You know, we talk about chemo brain, people talk about. Also, we see it with radiation, which I'm not gonna speak about. Certain chemotherapy drugs can cause neuropathy by affecting the nerves. And I'll speak about that more in a little while. And it can also affect the heart. Not all drugs, but certain drugs do. So again, all chemotherapy drugs um, can have side effects. Some are more severe than others. And many side effects are specific for various body parts. So we need to take that into consideration when we're designing chemotherapy protocols and also figuring out how to treat these side effects. So next slide, please. So we see side effects at various times from chemotherapy. We see immediate side effects. And these are side effects that you see pretty much, you know, sometimes within minutes or within hours after getting chemotherapy. And the most common side effect that we see that's an immediate effect is nausea and vomiting. And chemotherapy can cause nausea and vomiting in several ways. One is there's a center in the brain called the nausea center. And this is a, a part of the brain that is a normal part of the brain that teaches us to react to things that are noxious. Um, you know, millions of years ago, you wouldn't want to eat bad meat or rotten meat. So if you would smell rotten meat, you would become nauseous. It was a reflex to prevent you from eating that. Chemotherapy affects that center in the brain and can cause immediate nausea and vomiting. Chemotherapy can also um, increase the acid in your stomach. It can also relax the muscle, the sphincter muscle between the esophagus and the stomach that can allow acid to come up from the stomach into the esophagus. So chemotherapy can also, again, cause nausea both by affecting the stomach and the GI tract and also by affecting the brain. People also getting chemotherapy can lose their appetite. Um, just the thought of getting chemotherapy um, can make people sick and that's called anticipatory nausea and an anticipatory loss of appetite. You know, you're going to get something that's really not good for you. It makes you nauseous. You lose your appetite. You stop eating. And people can also get diarrhea directly from the chemotherapy and constipation. Some of the chemotherapy drugs we give do cause constipation, but most people that get constipation from chemotherapy, it's not so much from the chemotherapy itself, but it's from the anti-nausea medicines we give. Common anti-nausea medicines such as Zofran or Kytro, um, which are really the mainstays of the anti-nausea therapy for chemotherapy nowadays, those can both cause constipation. Um, so those are the immediate side effects of chemotherapy. Next slide, please. So some delayed side effects, and these are side effects that you may see 
that night, the next day, several days later, you can get fatigue, get fatigue just because of the emotional trauma of going through chemotherapy and also because of getting in, becoming anemic from chemotherapy, which is affecting the bone marrow. Some chemotherapy drugs cause immediate nausea and vomiting um, that you get that as you're getting the drug or that night, but some drugs such as cisplatin can give delayed nausea and vomiting. So people can get chemotherapy, we give anti-nausea medicines with that, they do okay that day, they do okay that night, but three, four days later, they get nauseous. Um, and that's a known side effect of certain drugs, again, such as cisplatin. So when we're treating patients with those drugs, we need to anticipate that and tell patients you know, that they may need to have anti-nausea pills at home to use several days later. And some anti-nausea medicines are much better for delayed nausea and vomiting than they are for acute nausea and vomiting. Next slide, please. And there's also some later side effects. You can get mouth sores from chemotherapy. And again, you get mouth sores from chemotherapy because chemotherapy kills preferentially the cancer cells, which are rapidly growing, but also the mucous membranes in the mouth. But we sometimes don't see those mouth sores until five, seven, 10 days after chemotherapy. Um, and if you get mucositis, mouth sores, you have trouble eating, um, you can become dehydrated, which can exacerbate and lead to other problems such as kidney insufficiency from dehydration, constipation. So again, those are things that we need to anticipate and figure out how we can treat those problems, the mucositis several days later. Hair loss, I'll talk about a bit later on, but you generally don't see hair loss from chemotherapy until about 14 to 17 days after the first treatment. And remember, some chemotherapies do cause hair loss, but many chemotherapies, particularly newer chemotherapy drugs that have been really developed over the past 10 or 15 years do not cause hair loss. So not all drugs cause hair loss, and we can be quite you know, selective in what drugs we choose if that's a side effect that we don't wanna see. But sometimes we need to give drugs that do cause hair loss um, because those drugs are most effective for that particular condition. And specifically, I'm talking about preventative chemotherapy or adjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer. Um, patients that are getting, have a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, and then we decide they need to get chemotherapy as a preventative to reduce the risk of recurrence. Almost all of those drugs that we use for prevention as adjuvant therapy, all those drugs do cause hair loss. Um, which is frequently the most feared side effect by patients, particularly women and particularly young women, because you know that's a very visible sign that you're getting chemotherapy. So we do have some ways of reducing that hair loss. And again, a later side effect could be malnutrition, dehydration. People aren't feeling well, they're not eating, they're drinking less, they're nauseous. Um, they take less fluid in, less fluid in leads to feeling very fatigued and tired, leads to constipation, you're not eating, you have more malnutrition, and all those exacerbate many of the other problems and really makes also the cancer much more difficult to treat. Next slide, please. So first of all, when we're talking about treating patients with chemotherapy, treating cancer patients, we like to have some standard as to 
what the patient's overall status is. And we call this the performance status. And this is a scale of patient's functional activity or functional capacity. So the most commonly used scale is called the Karnofsky scale. And just as a sidelight, Karnofsky was a Dr. Karnofsky, and he was one of the founders of modern medical oncology. And he worked at Sloan Kettering in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. And I think he died in the, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. And when I was at Sloan Kettering, we had a room where all the medical oncology fellows used to meet, where we would have our, our lectures and our seminars. And it was called our Karnofsky lecture room, and it was named after Dr. Karnofsky. And they had a beautiful oil painting of Dr. Karnofsky um, at the head of the table in this room. And these are one of those oil paintings that were done you know, in the 1950s. And if you remember that style, you know, it would be the doctor or the famous person would be sitting there and they would always have the cigarette in their hand and they would be surrounded by like a veil of smoke to make it very mysterious and very um, ethereal. Um, and I'm sure you've all seen those oil paintings back then. And unfortunately, Dr. Karnofsky was a cigarette smoker and he did die of lung cancer. So that was unfortunate. So when we talk about the Karnofsky scale, um, level 100% is normal activity. 90 is you're in good shape, you're able to carry on normal activities, but you have minor signs or symptoms. And then the level goes down to 70, 60, 50. That's where you require care. Um, and it goes down to you know, lower levels, 30, 40, and ultimately zero. And you also, so when we're thinking about treating patients with chemotherapy, we need to think about what their performance scale is or their Karnofsky level is at the beginning of treatment, because obviously someone that has a Karnofsky scale of 90 or 100 is in much better shape and they're gonna withstand chemotherapy and other treatments much better than someone that has a Karnofsky scale of, of you know, 40 or 50. Um, so looking at these, these levels, we can standardize how someone is feeling, what their level of activity is, and that can help guide us as to what type of chemotherapy they should give, how aggressive we should be, what dose we should give, and really what drugs we should give to try to minimize side effects for those patients. Next slide, please. So first of all, when we're thinking of giving someone chemotherapy, um, and they're putting chemotherapy combinations together, because most people are treated initially not with single chemotherapy drugs, but with combination drugs. So we think about giving someone a cycle of chemotherapy. Is the chemotherapy given once a week? Is it given two weeks in a row? Is it given once every three weeks? So those are called the cycle of treatment. And when doctors planned originally these chemotherapy combinations and we planned a cycle, we would try to combine drugs together that would have different side effects. And it didn't make sense to give someone two drugs together that both affected the heart because then the side effects would be synergistic and you would make the side effects much more. You wouldn't want to give two drugs together that both lowered the blood counts at seven days after treatment, because then you would be you know, multiplying the side effects and you would not be able to give someone the adequate dose of both drugs because the side effects would be additive and significant. So you would end up really under treating people. So when we combine drugs together and we come up with a cycle, we want to think about ways to minimize side effects. We want to think about the number of drugs that we're using. We need to think about the type of cancer that we're treating, um, the stage of the cancer, and the goals of treatment. Um, 
if our goal is to give chemotherapy to someone to cure them, obviously we want to treat as much as we can as um, uh, not regardless of side effects, but side effects are something that we just need to deal with much um, better because we want to try to give the maximum dose of treatment that we can to obtain our goal of curing someone. So if we're giving someone preventative chemotherapy, say after a lumpectomy or a mastectomy for breast cancer, we want to give the best drugs we can at the highest doses that we can within reason because we don't want to skimp on the drugs because we want to do our best treatment to cure those patients. So obviously the side effects that we'd be willing to tolerate and have the patient tolerate um, is we would want to maximize those treatments. But if someone has a poor performance status and they have cancer that is spread, they have metastatic stage four cancer, our goal then is not cure, but palliation. So then we may want to just give lower doses of drugs or give single drugs um, rather than combination drugs because we want to achieve a result of extending someone's life, improving their symptoms, but we don't want to expose that patient to maximum toxicity because our goal is palliation. We don't want to make the patient feel worse um, than they would from the cancer. Next slide, please. So the first thing I'm going to talk about a little bit more specifically is nausea and vomiting. Again, there's uh, immediate side effects and there's delayed nausea and vomiting. Um, so when we're talking about risk factors for chemotherapy, not everybody reacts to chemotherapy the same way. And it's been really found that when we're talking about risk factors for CIND, which is chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, um, some people tolerate chemotherapy much better or much worse than other people. And we found that if people have had a lot of chemotherapy prior to whichever drug we're using, that may be a risk factor for developing more nausea. Younger people, less than 50, tend to have more nausea and vomiting than older people. Women, for whatever reason, tend to have a little bit more nausea than men do. Um, women that have been pregnant, and if they've done fine with pregnancy, no significant nausea and vomiting, they tend to do better with chemotherapy than patients that had severe nausea and vomiting related to pregnancy. Um, patients that are get easily motion sick, uh, sickness, they tend to do worse with chemotherapy than patients that have no history of motion sickness. Um, and interestingly, patients that are alcoholics, we can frequently give all the chemotherapy that we want to, almost never have nausea and vomiting. Whereas if people can't drink one drink without getting sick, they do very poorly with chemotherapy, which kind of makes sense because you can't become an alcoholic if you get sick on one glass of wine. Um, and um, other things that can affect chemotherapy, nausea and vomiting, are the type of drug we're giving. Again, not all drugs cause the same nausea and vomiting, the chemotherapy dose and how we're giving the drugs, whether it's intravenous or oral. Next slide, please. Um, and just like we like to grade the patient's overall medical status, their Konofsky scale, we really want to have some standardization as to how well patients are tolerating chemo in terms of nausea and vomiting and what the level of sickness they may get. So if someone has grade one nausea and vomiting, that's usually very minimal. Um, you know, a little nausea, but they can deal with it by eating a cracker or just taking a Tums or something like that. 
I'm grade two, it's much more significant. You know, they may need some IV fluids in the office. They may need more, more intravenous medicine, anti-nausea medicine, but it's something that we can manage. Um, grade three, it's much more significant where they can't eat. We may need to admit them to the hospital, have patients on IV fluids, a much more significant problem. And grade four would be life-threatening complications. So this is the way that we standardize um, patients' response to chemo, side effects of chemotherapy. So we can try to kind of figure out how to treat patients across the board. Next slide, please. Um, um, so again, nausea and vomiting could be for a lot of reasons. One is anticipatory. Um, and for those of you who have had chemotherapy, you know, sometimes just thinking about it makes you sick. Uh, people walking into the lobby of the office, they feel nauseous um, you know, in, the, in the lobby. So this is a conditioned response and it happens in about 25 to 50% of patients. Anticipatory nausea is frequently very well treated by giving medicines like Valium or Ativan, medicines that are kind of antidepressants, but also tranquilizers. They work very well for that. Acute nausea and vomiting happens quickly. Delayed can happen later on, as I spoke about before. Uh, next slide, please. So we have various types of drugs to treat patients with nausea and vomiting. And just to, to, to backtrack, you know, I've been doing this a long time now. And when I first started in, in my fellowship in, at Sloan years ago, we really had no real nausea and anti-nausea medicines, only compazine or prochlorperazine. And patients were admitted to the hospital sometimes to get chemotherapy. We admit we would admit them the night before chemo. We'd give patients IV fluids, and we'd have to keep patients there for several days afterwards because nausea and vomiting was a significant problem, and it was really a, a limiting step in how we could treat many patients. But starting in the 1970s, we came up with medicines, and the first anti-nausea medicine that we came up with was the first one listed there, which was endosterone. And endosterone is um, also called Zofran, and there's other medicines like it called Kytrol and some of these other medicines. And these were really game changers. And just giving these medicines like Zofran or Kytrol um, or Aloxy really enabled us to give chemotherapy as an outpatient and prevent significant nausea bombing in almost everybody. Initially, the medicines were intravenously, they're now oral, um, they're now um, intravenous, they're now um, under the tongue, sublingual. So there are many different ways that we can give them. Another medicine that we give frequently for nausea is corticosteroids, which is prednisone, dexamethasone. And for some reason, these medicines just directly suppress the, the, the nausea and vomiting center in the brain. So we usually don't use steroids by itself for nausea, but we usually in combination with these other medications. These medicines are really, again, a game changer, really prevent nausea and vomiting in the majority of people. Next slide, please. Um, I'll just go through this quickly. So other medicines that we may use, Amirahaldol, which is a major antidepressant. This works frequently by um, suppressing the dopamine receptor membrane in the brain. We're using more and more of another antidepressant tranquilizer called Zyprexa, which works very well. Steroids, an old medicine there, prochlorperazine, which is compazine, which is um, still used frequently, but a very old medicine. Uh, the next drug is called metoclopramide. That's also called Reglan. And Reglan and metoclopramide is very good for that delayed nausea and vomiting that we see when patients, say, get cisplatin, where they have nausea and vomiting five to seven days later. We're also using um, um, marijuana now and Benadryl, which are also good additions to the other medicines I just mentioned. 
Next slide, please. Um, so um, I'm gonna move on now to another common side effect, which is a serious side effect, which is neutropenia. Neutropenia is lo the lowering of the white blood cells. Again, chemotherapy works by killing rapidly growing cells and the bone marrow, all the cells in the bone marrow that make the white cells, the red cells, and the platelets are all very rapidly growing. So chemotherapy affects those cells. So if someone gets chemotherapy, their neutrophils or white cells can get low. Normal is about 4,000 or above, but it says that what may be concerning if it's low, less than 1,000, um, then people become much more susceptible to an infection. And if you get an infection, you can become very sick, you can get septic, you can get a pneumonia, and you could be admitted to the hospital. So years ago, giving patients chemotherapy, many patients were admitted to the hospital seven to 10 days after the chemotherapy with sepsis or neutropenic fever. The hemoglobin goes low, you're anemic. Platelets go low, you're susceptible to bleeding. So the most serious combination would be sepsis or low counts. Next slide, please. So going back about 25 years, um, no, well, again, I'll just go over this quickly. So low white count, let, you can get an infection, low hemoglobin, you can become fatigued. If you're anemic enough, um, you can get chest pain, shortness of breath, um, dizziness, lightheadedness, and a low platelet count can increase your risk of bleeding. Next slide, please. So this is a graph that's a little hard for me to explain without having a pointer, but if someone gets chemotherapy, you can see the white cell count goes low, generally between eight and 12 days. So you see that in the bottom part of the graph where the white cell count goes low. And you see the sign, the, the, the word where it says placebo, and you can see the white cancer is then low for a period of time. That's all the dark shading underneath the, um, that straight line going across. So if you get chemotherapy with no protection, you're getting drugs that lower the white cell count. And again, not all chemotherapy drugs lower the white blood cell count. Your white blood cell count can be low for seven to 10 days after the treatment. And when it's low for that period of time, you have a very high likelihood of getting a serious infection. But if you get a newer drug, which we call a cytokine, it's been there at the top called Nupogen. And this is a drug that we give either by daily injections after chemotherapy, or we give a time release form called Nulasta. This doesn't prevent the white cell count going low, but it minimizes the time the white cells are low. So instead of being low for seven to 10 days, the white cells will be low for three or four days. So this drug, again, is a game changer, Nulasta Nupogen. It prevents the blood counts from going low for a long enough period of time to cause a serious infection. So nowadays it's almost unheard of for someone needing to be admitted to the hospital for sepsis or an infection from chemotherapy. Um, whereas 25, 30 years ago, it was almost a likelihood that someone getting high dose chemotherapy would be admitted with infection and frequently patients could die from that problem. And this pretty much is a thing of the past. So again, game changers so far, are the anti-nausea medicines and these growth factors that prevent the white cell count from going low. We also can give people Procrit, which is another growth factor, and that's also called um, Epigen, which is a hormone to stimulate the bone marrow to make more red blood cells to help minimize anemia. Next slide, please. Um, another serious side effect is cardiac toxicity. 
certain drugs such as adriamycin can affect the heart, causing the heart to pump less strongly. And um, this is common with adriamycin. We see it sometimes with other drugs, um, particularly a drug called Herceptin, which I hope we'll have time at the end to talk about briefly. But if someone gets cardiac toxicity from chemotherapy, they can have shortness of breath, chest pain, congestive heart failure. New, next slide, please. So we've realized that we can minimize this cardiac toxicity from anthracycline, which is a drug called atriomycin, by knowing that it's actually a rare side effect and people have had somewhere between 10 treatments given once every three weeks. So as long as we realize that we should stop the drug before we get to the certain level, and you can see where the line on the left of both sides is kind of low and the all of a sudden it goes up, once you reach that threshold of about 400 milligrams per meter squared of treatment, then it becomes much more likely to have cardiac heart problems. But as long as you stay below that level, it's kind of rare. And again, it's only certain drugs that do this. And we need to know to minimize the amount of drug. And we can follow patients by doing echocardiograms to make sure that their heart is normal to begin with and that the do that echocardiogram every three to four months while on treatment to make sure there's no issue with patients' hearts. Next slide, please. We can also minimize that by giving a different form of adriamycin. This is a new drug that's been created. So on the top, it says conventional doxorubicin. That's adriamycin, very common drug. But we can reformulate that by giving a drug called pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, which is also called doxyl. And this is adriamycin, but it's formulated in a different way, where each drug is kind of encapsulated in a little fatty membrane, each molecule of the drug. And this almost never gives heart problems, even though it's the same drug. So we can manipulate the drug to reduce side effects. Next slide, please. Um, so patients frequently get constipation from chemotherapy. Again, we have a rating system, grade one, where it's just a little bit, grade two, it's a little bit more, grade three, they need to be disimpacted, maybe need to go to the hospital, and four, it can actually cause rupture of the colon. Again, most chemotherapy drugs in and of themselves don't cause constipation, more likely to cause diarrhea, actually, but constipation is frequently caused by the anti-nausea medicines. Next slide, please. And we can minimize that by giving patients over-the-counter preventative things such as um, bulk-forming laxatives, um, which are things like a Metamucil or, um, or a Bran. We can give softeners such as Colase, and we can give osmotic agents. And those are drugs that I think rarely work the best, such as um, Miralax, which is an over-the-counter stool softener, not really a laxative. We can also give laxatives such as mag citrate, we can give Dulcolax. Um, so we can give those drugs as needed, but we can try to prevent that nourishment vomiting. We know it's gonna occur, actually nourishment vomiting constipation by giving preventative stool softeners or um, um, drugs such as Merrillax. Next slide, please. Um, I think we can skip this slide. Let's go to the next one. Um, Again, hair loss, very common side effect from many of the drugs, particularly the older drugs, and particularly drugs that we give for preventative treatment of breast cancer. And again, this is a very upsetting complication side effect for most people. Um, and we found that we can actually reduce hair loss by cooling the scalp. Um, 
And again, chemotherapy works by killing rapidly growing cells. The hair follicle and the scalp are rapidly growing. So if you can reduce the blood flow to the hair follicles during treatment, you reduce the amount of chemotherapy getting to the scalp. Just like if you're outside in the snow, very cold weather, you touch the snow with your hands, your hands turn white because less blood flow is flowing there because the blood vessels clamp down from the cold weather, so less blood flows there. So if you can cool the scalp, less blood flow will go there and you'll have less hair loss. So we now have cooling caps. And the one we use in the office is a company called Dignicap, where it's a little bit cumbersome because you have to cool, wet the hair, put a cap on, and then cold water circulates through this. And we start this a few hours before treatment, a, few, a little bit before treatment, and continue it for a few hours after treatment. And this can minimize the chemotherapy flow to the scalp. Next slide, please. And just to kind of, um, not all drugs do this. Again, adriamycin causes hair loss. So it says severe um, um, taxol, taxotere, cytoxin, etoposide, but many drugs cause no, none or moderate hair loss. And many of the more modern chemotherapy drugs are much less likely to cause hair loss. So not all drugs do. So we can pick and choose what drugs we want to give if this is a side effect that we can tolerate or don't want to tolerate. Next slide, please. But with the cold cap, and this is just the most likely drug to cause hair loss is adriamycin, doxorubicin, and it occurs basically in 100% of patients. So with the, school, the scalp cooling, and it says it's, you are approximately 56% less likely to keep more than 50% of your hair if you use a cold cap. So that's a little confusing, but if you use a cold cap, basically 75% of people don't lose that much hair that they would, would require a wig. You still will lose some hair, but you don't lose that much. And many patients treated with the cold cap um, will lose hair, but they will not require a wig. So most patients are quite happy that they do do this um, when they do it. It's not covered by insurance. Um, so there's a you know, small charge in really anyone's office if they would choose to use the cold cap. Next slide, please. Um, so I know you're gonna to wanna to leave time for slides. So I'm gonna kind of just go through some of the stuff because it's a quarter two. So I'm gonna to try to stop by about 10 to. So there'll be 10 minutes for questions if there are. So I mean, just so quickly. So other side effects we can see are mucositis. That's on the top and we can minimize that by using mouthwash rinses such as saltwater rinse. We're giving a, a prescription mouthwash called Magic Mouthwash, which is a combination of a um, cooling agent as well as a oral antibiotic. We can also give an oral mouthwash called Mycostatin or Nilstat. And that's actually a liquid antibiotic for fungus. And frequently the chemotherapy can cause a little bit of irritation in the mouth by killing rapidly growing cells. But we all have a naturally occurring fungus that lives in our mouth. Um, and our skin. So if we can then give a preventative antifungal mouthwash, we can prevent the overgrowth of that fungus and minimize the discomfort people get from the chemotherapy decreased mucositis. Some chemotherapy drugs give an allergic reaction such as Taxol or Taxotere. And we can minimize that allergic reaction, one, by reformulating Taxol and coming up with a drug called Abraxane which is a different form of Taxol or Taxotere that's been formulated specifically not to give an allergic reaction, but we can prevent or minimize the risk of an allergic reaction 
by giving patients preventative steroids before the chemotherapy, as well as giving Benadryl. So we can minimize those side effects as well. Next slide, please. Um, okay, I'm gonna skip this one. Next slide, please. Um, another thing I wanna talk about is hormonal therapy. So we know many chemotherapy, many, breast, many cancers are responsive to hormones. Um, they need hormones to grow. The most common cancer that needs hormones to grow is breast cancer, but also ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, and prostate cancer all need either estrogen or testosterone in order to grow. So if we can diminish or block the effect of hormones on these cancers, we can frequently treat the cancers without chemotherapy. Next slide, please. So medicines that block hormones from attaching to cancers, the most common drug we use is tamoxifen. We also use a drug called Farispan, and then there's a hormone called Foslidex. So these drugs are really anti-estrogens. These actually block estrogen from interacting with cancer cells. So if you have a breast cancer cell that is estrogen dependent or estrogen positive, we can give tamoxifen, block estrogen from stimulating those cells, and we can reduce the cancer. We can put the cancer hopefully into remission, or we can use it as a preventative and hopefully prevent the cancer from reoccurring. So tamoxifen, Faristan, and Foslodex are all anti-estrogens. Next slide, please. There are also drugs that are not anti-estrogens, but they are, these are drugs that prevent the production of estrogen in the fatty tissues in your body. So when you're premenopausal, you're making estrogen both in the fatty tissues as well as your ovary. But when you're postmenopausal, you only make estrogen in the fatty tissues in your body. So an, an astrazole, arimidex, aromacin, and letrozole, the last drug, these are what we call an aromatase inhibitors, and these block the production of estrogen from the fatty tissues. These drugs are only used in postmenopausal women. Next slide, please. So all of these hormones can give some side effects such as some nausea, they can cause some weight gain, fatigue, they can cause some hair loss sometimes, but the most common problems that we see from the anti-estrogens are hot flashes and sometimes some joint discomfort. We can treat the hot flashes sometimes by changing the drug. We can also recommend certain over-the-counter um, vitamin type therapies in the health food store, such as primrose oil, also called oil of evening primrose, or black cohash that can reduce the hot flashes. Um, we can also give prescription medicine, and we can give an antidepressant called Defexor, and we can give that in a very low dose. And that medicine, as well as certain other antidepressants at low dose, have been shown to be very effective at reducing hot flashes in women getting hormonal therapy. Next slide, please. Um, so again, hot flashes, some women get vaginal discharge, some women get vaginal dryness. Um, we can treat that by giving very low dose vaginal estrogen cream, um, which is so little absorbed, it likely has no systemic effects. And this can help treat that problem that we may see from hormonal therapy. Um, we typically don't see much fatigue or nausea from hormonal therapy. We can see joint discomfort particularly from the aromatase inhibitors. Um, next slide, please. Um, in men, we also use hormonal therapy. Not We can use tamoxifen or the aromatase inhibitors in male breast cancer, 
but mostly with prostate cancer, we give the agents that block testosterone rather than estrogen. And that could be that first drug called Zytiga. There's other drugs called Casodex or drugs called Xfandi um, or the drug one up from the bottom that's called Lupron or Eligard. And those are anti-testosterone drugs that we use for men um, with prostate cancer. They're also used sometimes in women with breast cancer. And all of these drugs cause the same side effects that I spoke about before. That could be hot flashes and joint discomfort. Next slide, please. Um, I'm gonna skip this one. Um, just briefly, there's newer drugs that we're using for breast cancer. These are about five or six years old. And these are drugs, the one I have listed here is called Ibrantz. There's other drugs like it. One is called Verzenio, Verzenio, and then there's one called Kiskali. And these are not chemotherapy drugs and they're not hormones. These are targeted therapy. These are drugs that are what's called C CDK46 inhibitors. And these drugs basically make the hormones work better. Um, we've been using them now for about six years and really with tremendous response, they really, we can only give these drugs when patients are estrogen positive and we're treating with estrogen, or we're, treating with, we're treating with either tamoxifen or one of the aromatase inhibitors, but they make these drugs the hormones work substantially better. Side effects of these drugs are minimal. Next slide, please. Um, they can um, give you sometimes a little low blood counts, low liver white count, occasionally some shortness of breath. Um, but I found the side effects of the um, eye brands of the drugs like it are minimal with substantial benefits. But again, these are not chemotherapy drugs and these are not hormones. These make the hormones work better. And the results have been really, um, uh, I think, really substantial. I've had women on eyebrands with hormones for six or seven years now that have remained basically in remission on just a hormone therapy alone with this drug. Next slide, please. Um, very, very briefly, immunotherapy, really what we're using now for many cancers, not all cancers, and been using immunotherapy drugs for about six or seven years. And the, the way immunotherapy drugs work, cancer cells can grow by eluding the body's natural immune system. Um, normally something that's foreign in the body, a bacteria, the body recognizes being foreign and the body activates its immune system and destroys that bacteria. But a cancer cell is actually your cell. It's just a mutated cell, but it's still your cell. So the body doesn't recognize that as being something bad. So the immune system doesn't work to destroy those cells. Um, but immunotherapy um, is a way of um, allowing the body to recognize these cancer cells and allow the body's immune system to kill these cells. Next slide, please. The most common immunotherapy uh, next slide drug that we use is called um, checkpoint inhibitors. And that's what's listed there first. And these are where cancer cells um, trick the immune system to thinking they're healthy or disrupted. So checkpoint inhibitors um, unmask the chemotherapy, unmask the cancer cell. So the body recognizes the cell as a bad cell and can allow the, can the body's immune system to attack those cells. We're working on cancer vaccines, which I'm not gonna speak about, but I understand from just reading the general papers that the first cancer vaccine for melanoma 
has just been shown to be effective and hopefully will be approved soon. Next slide, please. Um, so uh, next slide, I'm gonna skip this one too. The more common immunotherapy drugs that we're using now are Yervoy, basically for melanoma and lung cancer, Optivo, Keytruda, Tocentric, Bavencio, and Emphimzy. Keytruda is really the most common drug. It's also called um, Pembro. Um, and this is a checkpoint inhibitor. And we're using most of these immunotherapy drugs for many cancers with really tremendous responses. But again, not all um, cancers are responsive. The main side effects of immunotherapy are generally minimal. Most people get no side effects from them, but occasionally you just kind of get kind of weird things because the immune system is kind of activated. You get a rash, you get diarrhea, occasionally some shortness of breath and some diarrhea, but for the most part, very, very well tolerated. Um, many patients are treated with immunotherapy drugs with zero side effects, but with excellent responses. Next slide, please. Um, I spoke about this. And again, I have a couple of slides left, but I think I'm going to stop here because there's really only about five minutes left before eight o'clock. So just to see if there are any questions in this way, we can answer them. And I apologize for running long, but it's a lot of stuff. But again, at this point, we can go through any questions. Hello? So I am checking the chat and... If anybody has any questions, you can go ahead and enter them into the chat and I will go ahead and read them aloud. Anyone typing? I don't see anything. No, I don't see anything either. Um, if there are no questions, I mean, we can wait another minute and see if anyone has a question. <laughs> okay, uh, Carol, thank you. <laughs> All right. Oh, all our questions are coming in. Okay. All right. Okay. Do you want to read the questions or? Yeah, I hold on. I, it started moving. So I was trying yeah. to read one and then it went away. Okay. So Carol, thank you. All right. So what to do about neuropathy? Yeah. Okay. So neuropathy is seen um, commonly from chemotherapy. It's not the most common side effect are not all drugs cause neuropathy. It's generally dose-related, meaning the longer you've been treated, the more likely you are to get that. Um, there are some drugs that people feel can help minimize neuropathy, but for the most part, none of the drugs you know, work very well. Um, so basically, if someone is getting neuropathy, um, we may start minimizing, cutting, reducing the dose of the drug and even stopping the drug early. The more common drugs that can do that are the Taxol or Taxotere. Um, once people have neuropathy, again, we can stop the drug. Generally, it improves as time goes on. So once you stop a drug over a matter of months, that neuropathy can be minimized and it may never go away. Some things that can help it though are a good diet, 
vitamins. Some people feel that the B complex vitamins can help a little bit. Never been overly impressed with that, but it may help a little bit. Um, we can give people certain uh, medicines um, such as a Neurontin or Gabapentin or Lyrica. Um, they can sometimes help minimize neuropathy. Once it starts, it won't prevent it, but it can sometimes minimize neuropathy as time goes on. Um, again, it's a bad side effect, but usually by monitoring the dose of the drug and stopping it early, you can prevent it before it gets too bad. Okay, let's see. Um, will the side presentation be available? There will be a recording of this available on the East Brunswick Public Library uh, YouTube channel. And if you're a comfortable doctor um, with it, if you email me, if um, we all agree, I can send this PowerPoint's presentation to you. Are, are you okay with that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, the next question, I'm on anastrozole, and that's yeah. one of the, that's one of the, um, um, aromatase inhibitors, one of the hormones for breast cancer. Okay. So, um, she's been on it for five years total. What happens to the body hormone wise after five years? Um, <clears throat> I mean, generally nothing generally, I mean, people from receiving the hormones, most of the side effects are hot flashes, joint discomfort, but it doesn't cause arthritis. It doesn't really affect the joint. So really, once you stop those hormones, pretty much everything gets back to its baseline. However, the aromatase inhibitors, one thing I didn't discuss, can cause some thinning of the bone. As we all get older, we all tend to get some thinning of our bones, some osteopenia. Some people get more, it's called osteoporosis. And with the aromatase inhibitors, such as anastrozole, people can get more osteoporosis. Um, so once you stop these medicines, you may be left with a little bit more thinning of the bone. So patients may need um, to be followed with bone density studies, which we should, but some patients will need to be placed on medicines such as Fosamax, Boneva, or Prolia to help the bones become a little bit more um, robust. Uh, it seems that our friend who asked about the neuropathy, I keep saying this. Neuropathy. Wrong. Neuropathy. Asked, um, can fatigue continue for years? I mean, you know, I guess it really could, but I mean, you know, generally once you finish chemotherapy or any of these therapies, you know, within a matter of months afterwards, you really should be feeling pretty much back to normal. And yes, there can be some long-term side effects. You can have long-term neuropathy, it could affect your heart, but assuming that your heart's not affected, um, you know, you really should get back feeling pretty much to normal. Now remember, as the years go by, people get older. Um, you know, they've been through a lot of treatment. They could be more tired. You know, just in terms of everything. So, you know, fatigue, yes, can last for years, but it's usually I don't think it's a major problem as as the years go by. Okay, and Larry asked, do the hot flash drugs work also when treated for prostate cancer? Um, with men, uh, yes, they should. Um, so they should work as well as they do in men or as women, men and as women. Okay, it is 7.59. I don't see any other questions. Uh, oh, wait, sorry. Sorry, uh, Theodore asked, uh, is, I don't want to say this wrong. Is XG even the best drug for yes. women? Uh, for, um, I mean, there's, um, there's many different drugs we can get for bone thinning. 
They all work well. I mean, the oral drugs are called Fosamax or Boniva. They work well. Um, they can bother your stomach. And there's pills you have to take either once a week or once a month. Exgeva is also a medicine called Prolia. It's the same medicine. When we're giving it for osteoporosis, we give it generally twice a year and we call the drug Prolia. If someone has cancer that is spread to the bone, same drug, but we give it monthly and that's called Exgeva. I think most doctors would feel that Exgeva, Prolia is probably a little bit better for bone loss, um, but I don't think it's substantially better than the oral medicines. Some people prefer to get an injection a couple of times a year. Some people prefer to take pills, but I think they're all effective and they all do work well. Okay, okay. I, think, <laughs> I think we are just about, it is 8.01. Thank you everyone for all your wonderful questions. Thank you, doctor. Thank you to Estera Cancer Care for letting this presentation be possible and Dorothy and Karen and just for the health of it. Um, if anybody, uh, any of the attendees um, want to email me at agrant at, at ebpl.org, um, please feel free to. I can um, send you the slideshow as we were talking about and send you a direct link to the YouTube. And thank you for allowing me to do this and I appreciate all of your coming. So everyone have a good night. Good night, everyone. I'm going to go ahead and end it. Thank you. Bye-bye.